You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. When I was a little kid, just as now, I loved the library. Probably once a week, my mother took me there and I would bring home giant stacks of library books. And from a very young age, I was fascinated by natural disasters. So um, spontaneous combustion and tornadoes and hurricanes. And I was fascinated by volcanoes and the idea that a mountain could just explode and uh, destroy entire civilizations. I was the kind of reader who understood fact versus fiction at a pretty young age, but I had a harder time putting into context, okay, so a volcano is real, but is it the real from hundreds of years ago, or is it the real from now, but 500 miles away? Mount St. Helens was on the television when I was a kid. So while I was doing all this reading and seeing these things in books, then it happened on television. It's the kind of thing where you go to your parents and say, could that happen here? Do you remember what your parents would say when you would ask them about volcanoes? And Don't worry it about it. Don't worry about it. That would never happen here. That, that doesn't happen in Maryland. Kate Crane grew up outside Baltimore. She describes her childhood as pretty uneventful, aside from some minor drama with her sister. You had one sister, is that right? Yes. And what was your vibe with her? We never were so close. I actually asked my mom about that recently because I'm not close at all to my sister, and I asked my mother what it was like and... She said that the central tension would be that my sister would want to play and I would want to read a book. So I would be reading and my sister would come and, you know, want to actually do something mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to reading, which is not doing anything. <laughs> right, and I right. would just be like, leave me alone. I'm reading a book. <laughs> what was your dynamic like with your mom? I liked my mom. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom who um, did a really good job of uh, taking care of all of the critical household stuff. There was always food in the fridge, and the house was always clean, and um, she took me to school and picked me up from school, and uh, she's a nice person. She was nice to her children. Kate has a harder time remembering what her dad was like. I only knew him for 12 and three quarters years, which is not, it's the formative 12 and three quarters years, but it's not a lot of time. She remembers polyester shirts and black work boots. When I asked Kate what her dad looked like, she paused. It's funny because I think that's the number one thing that I put to the side. He was big. Uh, He always struggled with his weight black hair and uh, a widow's peak and a round face and big meaty hands 
And it's funny because now I'm remembering like the missing persons flyer. Uh, and I'm thinking how tall, how tall was my father listed on his missing persons flyer? Uh, and <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's six feet. From WALTFM, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. And this week, to begin the fourth season of our show, we bring you the story of how Kate's dad ended up on that missing persons flyer. She's been trying to sketch out who her father really was ever since. I still actually have a bunch of his socks. I'm moving apartments right now, and um, I found a pile of his socks in the back of one drawer. So like these black polycotton socks that I've just carried around from apartment to apartment and moved across the country. After the break, an eruption and its aftermath. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Family Ghosts. Our story today begins in 1987, just outside Baltimore, Maryland. Kate Crane was 12 years old, living in the suburbs with her mom, her younger sister, and her dad, Eddie. The thing I always think about with me and my father was that we drove together. I went to work with him a lot, and his business was in Curtis Bay, which is a very industrial part of Baltimore. And you would drive up a little drive, and it was tucked away. So it was like this secluded place in an already secluded place. And when you got up there, there were trucks everywhere, like trucks parked and uh, truck pieces and um, piles of truck parts. Like I actually remember mountains of like little truck part volcanoes. We both loved music. He had this uh, 1975 tan Mercedes sedan uh, and uh, he tricked it out with nice speakers and like he and I made the car vibrate from, and he was really, I mean, I don't know if you called them oldies at the time, but we would listen to like uh, the song about the flying purple people eater. And uh, he was really into Simon and Garfunkel and Patsy Cline. The office down in Curtis Bay was probably 45 minutes from where we lived. So those long drives, partly on highway, partly through Baltimore City, were a big part of how I how I hung out with him. Eddie Crane was the co-owner of a company called E&M Machinery. They'd buy heavy-duty trucks and cannibalize them for parts drivetrains and transmissions, that sort of thing. Eddie ran the business with his friend Augie. I called him Uncle Augie. Uh, he was uh, like an unofficial godfather. We had a long-running plan for him to build me a desk. So if I would hang out with my Uncle Augie, it was often to like sketch out plans for what I wanted my writing desk to look like. And I often went home with him at lunchtime he and his family lived very close by in uh, a part of Baltimore called Brooklyn. And uh, he had a garage with um, full-size arcade games. So I would, I would go back to his house and play Pac-Man and Frogger in the garage. When Kate got home after school or from playing video games in Augie's garage, Eddie usually wasn't home yet. 
he was still at the office. He did tend to work late. So I didn't spend a lot of time with him in the evenings. But he would call around 8 o'clock and say that he was on his way home. And uh, then he would come home. He called every night and he came home every night. Every night, that is. Until that last one. September 10th, 1987. Uh, I was probably awake when he called to say he was coming home. Um, And then I went to bed and um, I was asleep. So I had no idea what was going on. Um, It wasn't until my mother woke me up the next morning. That was unusual. I did have an alarm clock at that point. So either my alarm would go off and I would ignore it and she would come to the door and say, you know, okay, it's time to get up. Or I would get up with the alarm. But that morning I woke up and my mother was sitting at the foot of the bed uh, looking very freaked out. She said, dad didn't come home last night. And, uh, And I knew right away that he was dead. He didn't go on business trips, and as far as I know, he never slept at the office. He always came home. And he had called the night before to say that he was coming home. So it was just that. If my mother was breaking the morning routine and looking as freaked out as she was, sitting on my bed, like clearly trying to break bad news to me, then I think in some, on some level, I knew she was also hiding other things. So she's sitting on the edge of the bed, and what she is saying is, Dad didn't come home last night. But the look of her is so much worse than those words. It was the time before cell phones, but this was, say, 7 in the morning or 8 in the morning, and he had called at 8 or 9 o'clock, the night before, that's a lot of hours. If his car had broken down or if there had been an accident, um, he could have called, the police could have called. If anything in the normal realm of mishap had happened, we would have gotten a phone call in that 10-hour window from someone. Had you ever specifically feared about his death or anything like that? Um, Not outside of the volcano stuff of worrying that some kind of disaster could drop out of the sky. And then my parents always reassuring me that um, these things don't happen here. My mother says I wailed. She said I let out a horrible wail. I don't remember that at all. Uh, She remembers that very clearly. And then I do remember police coming by and a lot of um, her relatives coming by to bring like soggy McDonald's food. I do think of that moment as the childhood ending. I think enough time has passed that I I both actively avoid speaking of it in any any language that I would call dramatic. I mean, right now I'm I'm definitely sweating and I'm a little like my hands are cold and I don't enjoy talking about it, but a lot of the overt 
volcanic emotion has drained out. But I do think it's very fair to say that that is when childhood ended, even though I was not 13 yet. I just knew he was gone. And as the days passed, uh, he was both gone and not being found. So as the days passed, part of me was walking back and thinking, he can't be dead, that can't be right. This has to be a mistake. But at the same time, as every day passed, uh, that initial instinct that everyone thinks is so weird uh, seemed to be bearing out. Like, he's not coming home, no one is calling. Um, we're not getting that, uh, that candid camera moment where someone jumps out of the bushes and says like, hey, it's all, it's all been a joke. Just silence and waiting and uh, days passing with my dad not coming home. I was very curious. The kind of kid who goes to the library every week and brings home a huge stack of books and actually reads them all. I wanted to know everything. And this was the... I probably had never so much wanted to know about something in my whole life. And no one would tell me anything. Our story continues after the break. In the days and weeks after the mysterious disappearance of Eddie Crane, a new, equally mysterious presence crept into Kate's house. Silence. From her mom in particular. We didn't talk about it. If I had to summarize the following six or seven years, um, or longer, if I had to summarize the following 30 years, uh, we didn't talk about it. And was it a situation where you would try to and she would kind of brush it off? Yes. Or? She would say that uh, the police were doing everything they could and that they would tell us if they had news. And there wasn't much she could tell me. And she would also say, I don't want to get into it. It was incredibly frustrating. I, I hated being in the dark. Was there anyone you were able to confide in and talk to about what you were feeling? No. Until somehow I fell into this network of pen pals uh, when I was maybe 14 or 15. I would say this went on for about five or six years. And at the height of it, I probably had 24 pen pals that I actively in exchanged correspondence with. Did you tell them everything about what was going oh, I on? I told them everything. Yes, these would be like 14-page letters. It must have been so good to have that, that outlet. Yes. I felt like they understood me. And maybe they didn't, but I could express myself completely in my own handwriting, on paper. There was no one looking me in the face, 
you know, confused or baffled or uncomfortable. It was just the page. And then the sense of understanding came in that they never turned away. Uh, they kept writing back. So I got that sense of understanding. I do think I expressed a lot of uh, a lot of anger about uh, my mother. Uh, I felt deeply misunderstood by my mother. And there was a sense of unfairness that part of me is tempted to write off as um, teenage petulance, but my father had dropped off the face of the earth. That That is actually pretty unfair. And actual teenage petulance mixed with weird true crime drama. I felt a little overwhelmed by unfairness. Dad disappeared in September 1987, and um, I started high school in fall, one year later. I was like, I don't know, sophomore year of high school. And uh, I somehow got involved with Amnesty International, which was um, a point of conflict with my mother. She didn't understand why I cared about people from other countries. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I founded a chapter of, of Amnesty International at our high school. And there would be these regional meetings. And somehow I met uh, a kid named Matt Porterfield. And I quickly became very close to Matthew. And Matthew was like, I think he's two years younger than me. And he definitely felt like a little kid at that point. But we we were we just bonded immediately. Before long, Matt invited Kate over to his house for dinner with his parents, Vicky and Gordon. I basically walked in the door of that house on Louise Avenue in Baltimore and you know, like eyes as big as saucers, there are books everywhere and people are laughing and uh he lived with both of his parents and his mother Vicky always cooked these lovely meals. And after dinners, we would talk about books and movies and theater and plays. And Gordon was a theater teacher in the Baltimore City School System. And we we all just talked. At my home, we didn't talk. And when Matthew brought me into this house, I just felt like I had gone to heaven. Matthew is like a brother to me. But as time passed... Uh, I became less close on a day-to-day -day level with Matthew and um, like extremely close with Gordon. It's, it's funny that that is so much harder to talk about than my father. Uh, I'm standing talking to you right now in this apartment that I'm getting ready to move out of in a week, a week from today. And, uh, we have the microphone propped up on a bunch of boxes full of books. And the very top box is, uh, a box of Gordon's books. So I'm like, I'm looking at that box of books. Um, you know, he was... He was like the chosen dad and also just my best friend who was, I think he was 51 when I met him. 
So, you know, like 35 years older than me, something like that. We went to the movies, we went to dinners. We would go to a place in Baltimore called Cafe Zen, and then this place called The Chameleon all the time. We would go to this place called Coco's for crab cakes. He kind of was a human volcano. Uh, he, uh, he was a very volatile personality. And he didn't eat vegetables. He was the kind of person that uh, if broccoli accidentally came on his plate, he, he would be tempted to send the food back. Um, but also he was a creature of habit, so servers at restaurants knew don't put vegetables on Gordon Porterfield's plate. He was an extreme weirdo. Just truly one of the strangest people I've ever met in the best way. And he could be um, very, very difficult for the people who actually lived with him. And um, I think he was very difficult um, as an actual parent. You know, I got, I got the best of all of it. There's some relationships you can't look at and say, oh, that, that sprouted out of... XYZ, I genuinely think that uh, uh, God or whatever your concept of God is drops certain people into our lives at certain pivotal points in our lives. And he was part of my soul family. After a few years, Kate still didn't have any answers about what happened to her father. But she had her work with Amnesty and her friendship with Gordon. Little by little, Kate was starting to move on. By my my junior year, it was almost as if nothing had ever happened. Um, but then, David Simon came to our house. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, Kate is talking about that David Simon the creator of The Wire and Treme on HBO and the author of The Corner, among other things. But this was 1992. None of that had happened yet. David Simon had recently published his first book, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, for which he spent a year embedded with homicide detectives on the Baltimore police force. The book was a sensation. But it would still be another few years before Simon became an Emmy-nominated TV producer. At the time, he was uh, a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. And what I didn't know was that he had done research for a book that ultimately would be called Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets. And he had ridden around with um, homicide detectives for a year. And over the course of that time, he found out about my dad. And uh, my dad's case stuck with him. And so he wanted to do a piece like five years later. That piece ran the same week that I graduated from high school. And that's when all of a sudden I knew things, that the doors blew open. Simon's piece quotes police sources who have a theory about what happened to Eddie Crane on the night of September 10th, 1987. They believe Eddie was sitting at his desk in Curtis Bay when two armed men entered the office, where they shot him and then dragged him outside. His body was placed in a truck and driven somewhere. Simon also describes the evidence that police found in Eddie's office. Bullet holes in the cabinets, the ceiling and the desk, and blood. On a desk, a TV screen, as well as a mop and bucket allegedly used to clean up the crime scene. The blood had been tested, 
and it was the same blood type as Kate's father. I would say most of what was in that article I heard for the first time. But the crime scene details weren't as interesting to Kate as the rest of the article. Remember, she had felt certain Eddie was dead since the moment her mom woke her up that morning back in 1987. Kate wasn't shaken up by how it happened. The part that stuck out to her was why. My father and Augie had had a conflict over money, and there was a heated argument um, outside the business. And um, that after that fight, my dad started working at night. Augie would work in the day, and my dad would sleep late and go into the business like at three or four in the afternoon. That was the main thing that stuck out to me, that there was this big fight and it was about money. Like suddenly there was a, a reason for why he might have disappeared. That possible reason, as Simon tells it, is complicated. According to the article, not long before his disappearance, Eddie came to believe that Augie was stealing from the business. Money had been going missing for a while by that point. But no matter how many employees they fired, it kept happening. Eddie became convinced Augie was the one doing the stealing, and that's what led to the shouting match. The friendship between Eddie and Augie evaporated, and Eddie started trying to convince Augie to let Eddie buy him out of the company. But then, Eddie did something sort of odd. He took a bunch of money out of the company's bank account himself. He told his brother... He was preemptively stealing it so that Augie couldn't. And that fact led Augie to tell David Simon that Eddie was the one embezzling money and that Eddie had faked his own death and disappeared with the cash. Towards the end of the article, Simon quotes Augie as saying, The whole thing was a mess, and I'd just as soon forget it. Just like everyone else in Kate's family, Augie didn't want to talk about whatever happened to Eddie Crane. The article didn't answer Kate's questions about her father. But just when she'd gotten to a place where she could almost pretend the whole thing had never happened, it reminded her that the answer might still be out there. It stirred up all those awful memories from 1987. Like this one, from the early days following her father's disappearance. There was the kitchen and living room that were separated by a wall in sort of the front of the house, and then there was a hallway that led back to the bedrooms. So I do remember hanging out with my sister a little bit and, and like, getting down on her hands and knees and listening under the cracks of the door. And uh, I remember my sister saying, like, do you think Uncle Augie had something to do with it, or did Uncle Augie do something to Dad? And that's what it sounded like from what we could hear wafting back from the kitchen and living room. So you specifically remember hearing Augie's name? Oh, definitely. Uh And what did you think about that theory? I, you know, this had been my godfather. I, I had never had any reason to suspect that he was anything other than my dad's best friend. No reason, that is, until now. Next time on Family Ghosts, Kate gets out of Baltimore and tries to leave the mystery of whatever happened to her father behind. A few years after high school, 
she finds herself living with her friend Brad in a house full of punk rockers. Brad said to me, if you need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you have to jump from the door frame to the toilet because if you step on the floor, you'll you'll go plunging down to... Oh, God. Uh, I had this fairy tale belief that punk could be family and that, uh, like, I had found... I had found a family. But try as she might, Kate still finds herself haunted by her father's ghost. By winter of 95, I wasn't showing up at my internship anymore, and uh, I essentially didn't get out of bed for three months. I stopped eating, and I slept all the time. Um, All this time later, I still get edgy when I take naps a little bit. And finally, after years of unanswered questions, Kate decides to take matters into her own hands. I called the cold case unit at the Baltimore City Police Department. I stammered a lot about my dad's murder, and there was this gruff man on the other end of the line who had a thick Baltimore accent, and he said, well, who's your dad? And I said, Eddie Crane. And he said, that's not a murder case, that's a missing persons case. Just didn't miss a beat. And I was speechless. That's coming up in two weeks when we bring you the next chapter of Kate's story right here on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman. Our show is made possible by the generous support of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get early access to all of our episodes, hear them ad-free, and also get exclusive bonus content not available anywhere else. The work we do here at WALTFM wouldn't be possible without them. So if you have the means, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash familyghosts. Special thanks this week to Michaela Bly and Najib Amini, and of course, to Kate Crane. We'll be back in two weeks with the next chapter in Kate's story. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then.